EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com energygang to learn more about the utility scale and CNI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. Before we start this episode, I just want to make clear that our discussion was recorded before the Russian attack on Ukraine had begun. As you'll hear, we were talking after Russia had recognised the independence of the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, but before the full-scale invasion. We will have a lot to say about what the conflict in Ukraine means for energy in our next episode. But this time, we were talking before the full extent of the crisis had unfolded. So, with that clarified, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy, which is changing even faster than usual right now. I'm Ed Crooks. On today's show, we will of course be looking at the implications for energy of President Vladimir Putin's statement on Monday, recognising the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Ukraine. But we also have plenty of other subjects to talk about. We'll be looking at the Texas power crisis one year on, the right lessons and the wrong lessons that people have learned. We're going to be discussing the opposition to a new power line that's meant to bring low-carbon electricity to New York. Why are some environmental groups opposing it? And we'll be talking about why the US Army has joined many governments and businesses in setting a net-zero goal for 2050. To discuss those topics, we have Emily Chasen back again. She's at Generate Capital, the sustainable infrastructure investment firm. Hi, Emily. How are you? Great to see you again. Hi, Ed. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me back. And for the first time, I'm delighted to welcome Joshua Rhodes, who's a research associate at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a founding partner of a firm called Ideasmiths, which works on analyzing energy systems. Hi, Joshua. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here. I'm glad to be here. So, Joshua, as usual, when we have someone new on the show, it'd be great to hear from you a bit about what you do at the University of Texas, and also a bit about the career path that led you there. How did you get into energy? Yeah, thanks. So at the University of Texas, I teach energy-focused data analytics classes to incoming graduate students in mechanical engineering, um, but also do energy systems-level research with the Weber Energy Group, uh, but also in the uh, Department of Mechanical Engineering, and a consultant at uh, Ideasmiths who do energy systems analysis. The path to get me into energy was a, is an interesting one. It um, I've always been interested in, you know, conserving energy, not wasting things. And I think it actually goes back to some old schoolhouse rock videos that I may have seen on a Saturday morning that uh, some U.S. listeners may be chuckling about uh, remembering. But it's I've always kind of grown up not wanting to, to, to waste things. And then in the course of not knowing what I wanted to do, getting out of college kind of during the uh, financial crisis of 2006, 2008, not really knowing what I wanted to do, I, I moved to Colorado and actually was building houses. I was just literally swinging a hammer. I got to talking to an electrician one time, and he told me that he used to install uh, wind turbines. He used to help install wind turbines in southeast Colorado, where there's a lot of wind um, out there. And he said that he wasn't doing that anymore because they couldn't get the water to mix the concrete to pour the footings. And these things have massive, you know, concrete footings that they have to, to sit on. And it was the first time that, like, constraints in one sector kind of uh, led to constraints in another. And so since I'd been interested in that, I wanted to, to study that type of thing, which led me to the University of Texas and studying energy systems and you know how they interact with each other. And what's a great background for that kind of career. I always think it makes such a difference. If you've been doing something at the ground level, as you say, you've actually been swinging the hammer, working on construction, actually involved in projects on the ground gives you a completely different understanding. As some, I always think it's not like, you know, you can understand things with your head, but that's right. different from really understanding them with your gut. And actually having that kind of instinctive gut feel for how a system works is really important and can be a massive contributor to understanding it. Yeah, because things on the ground are often much more complex than we make them out to be sometimes in spreadsheets and models. Uh, absolutely, as I'm sure is going to come up during uh, some of the subjects we're going to be talking about today. So first thing I want to talk about, as I was saying, is Russia's actions on Monday. Not something we'd planned to talk about today, but clearly it does have huge implications for the world of energy. Russia is one of the world's big three oil producers alongside the US and Saudi Arabia. I think right now it's just a bit behind the US in terms of oil production, but it's pretty close. And for gas, Russia is world number two. It's some way behind the US, but it's still well ahead of any other country 
on Earth, and it also provides roughly a third of Europe's gas supply. It's a very, very important gas supplier to Europe. So if we have disruption to pipelines, maybe an impact from further sanctions being announced, that's going to have a big impact on the world of energy. Just before we started recording now, we heard Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, saying that the country wouldn't certify the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. That's a new pipeline just been built, but Germany says that they're not going to allow that now to come into service because of Russia's actions over Ukraine. I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot more about the fallout for energy from this crisis in future episodes of The Energy Gang, but just in terms of sort of initial thoughts, and Joshua, maybe get your thoughts first on this. What does this make you think when you see this big crisis involving big energy supplier to the world? What are the implications, do you think, for the energy transition and everything we always talk about on this show in terms of the shift to lower carbon energy and the way that the world of energy is changing? Yeah, so these, these forms of energy you've been talking about, oil and gas, I mean, they're all, you know, massively globally traded commodities. And so any uncertainty that's injected into that market is going to have the, um, is likely going to drive up prices for those, for those commodities. And that will change, you know, the, 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 the bills that people pay at the end of the day to keep their homes warm or cooling with air conditioning. So, I mean, I think it, it, it adds a lot of uncertainty into that market. And I think it can, it can change. So that uncertainty can, can have short-term effects in terms of prices, but that uncertainty can also have long-term effects in terms of, you know, what do you build going forward? Because if you are less certain that a certain form of energy is going to be firm or available, um, you may make different decisions going forward on, you know, what you use to, you know, power your economy. Yeah, it's a really interesting thought. I mean, just thinking about Germany specifically, Olaf Scholz, Social Democratic uh, Chancellor of Germany, only a couple of months ago, they came to power with this policy program talking about increased use of gas, which by definition then means increased use of imported gas because they didn't produce any of their own. And they see gas as an important backup for renewables at the same time that they in Germany are getting out of nuclear power and getting out of coal. And now they are saying, well, we're actually going to block off one big new source of imported gas, which is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So it's clearly leading to some pretty fundamental reassessments, as you say, about what are kind of the long-term issues in energy security. So Emily, what's your take been on this? Yeah, you know, this is yet another conflict that seems to really impact our energy supply and maybe even be fundamentally related to energy supply worldwide. Um, there have been so many conflicts over what if you hear uh, Scott Jacobs generate CEO talk, he'll always say that one of the reasons he started to get interested in energy was saying that, well, if we could make the world have more stable sources of energy, maybe there would not be so much human strife and conflict over that. So this is, you know, interesting to see oil prices spiking just as sort of we have this like beginning recovery out of COVID. That is going to be a big deal. I know I, I drive a hybrid car and we get all these offers from people right now that want to buy my hybrid car back from me. And it's just because like, it's so efficient on the oil, right? Like people don't want to spend so much money in oil. So we're going to see that have a huge economic impact. I think also just doubles down on the need to think about renewable energy security and distributed energy security and other sources of baseload power. You know, we're, there are so many places we're having huge success in Europe, especially in terms of renewables generating power, like wind generating 25% of England's power supply or solar or Portugal having great solar. But when that drops, you know, they really still rely on fossil fuel baseload. And so I think just coming up with alternatives for that and thinking about that, this is another reason um, to keep thinking about that. Yes, we're going to be having many more discussions about these issues in the weeks and months to come, I am sure. Before this breaking news about Russia and Ukraine, what we were going to start this pod with was a discussion about the power crisis that unfolded in Texas a little over a year ago. And that's what I want to talk about now. I'm sure you'll remember it. We picked it as one of the most important events in the year for energy last year. During winter storm Uri in February 2021, there were millions of people in Texas who lost power, many of them for days, and hundreds of people died. 700 people, according to one estimate I've seen, they were freezing to death, or they got uh, carbon monoxide poisoning as they tried desperately to keep warm. And everyone agrees it's very important to learn the lessons from this disaster so we can stop anything like it ever happening again. The problem is, I think there are still very widespread disagreements about what the real lessons are. And it seems pretty clear there are quite a lot of people out there who are determined to learn the wrong lessons. So Joshua, this is something you've absolutely been living with. It happened in your own backyard. 
it's something you have been studying a lot in the year since it happened. Can you talk us through a little bit? I mean, perhaps maybe just start with the basics, the facts. Uh, what actually happened? What caused the blackouts? And why was it such a big deal? Yeah, no, we've, we've been talking a lot about this, particularly in, in Texas. And I was one of those, you know, 10 to 12 million Texans that lost power for four days, you know, during one of the, the coldest winter events that, um, you know, that we've seen in, in, a, in, a, in a while. At a high level, you know, what happened in Texas in February in 2021 was a climate, energy, water, health, housing, and financial crisis all rolled into one. And they just kind of all snowballed into um, each other. It was the first time in recorded history that all 254 counties of Texas were under winter storm watch at the same time. And at the same time is important because, you know, if everybody wants energy to heat their homes, which about 60% of homes in Texas are heated via electricity, if everybody wants you know electricity to heat their homes at the same time, then we have to be producing that electricity kind of at that same time. And actually, had we been able to supply all of the electricity that would have been demanded, it's estimated that it would have actually exceeded our previous summer peak demands. And when people think about Texas, they don't think about snow and ice; they think about you know hot, you know hot summer suns and, and everything like that. And everyone has an air conditioner, and so we know what that's going to look like. But we, if we've been able to meet that peak demand in the winter, we very likely would have well blown past our our previous um, summer peaks. But at the same time that we had the highest demand that we possibly had ever seen, we also lost about half of our power plants. Um, about half of our power plant capacity was offline for um, many, many different reasons. Some were offline for uh, for maintenance. That's typically the time power plants take maintenance outages to get ready for the, the summer that we know is always coming. But we had a lot of power plants go down for forced outages. So these are things like frozen water intakes and frozen sensors and um, all and, and all kinds of other weather-related issues as well as power plants that just couldn't get fuel. We had curtailments of you know, natural gas to, um, to power plants. We had coal piles that were uh, frozen and couldn't be pulverized into powder anymore. And you know, we, we essentially ended up in a situation where we had record demand and record low supply. And the grid operator, ERCOT, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, was left with no other option but to order um, uh, power to be turned off to to millions of Texans in orders in a last ditch effort, you know, to keep the system stable, um, so that we didn't go into a catastrophic blackout, which by some estimates we were just a few minutes away from. And to get to that crucial question, then, which has sort of dominated the debate since the crisis, to what extent was it caused by renewable energy? I mean, I've I've heard you mention uh, gas plants, you mentioned coal plants, you haven't talked about what, if any, the contribution of uh, renewable energy might have been. Was it either the main driver or part of the drivers behind the crisis? So it depends on how it wants to slice the data. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so I'm just going to jump in there and say, well, so that's not a, you know, what kind of an answer? <laughs> that seems no, no, like the, the typical academic answer, right? Which is, uh, you know, on the yeah, one hand, on the other. Is it? Yeah. Uh, okay. Right. So it's it's complicated, right? Yeah. Any good engineer yeah. says, you know, it's it, it's complicated. So there, there's a couple different ways of thinking about it. One is, you know, how many how much capacity of power plants do we have? What's our what what's the maximum rated capacity that power plants able to the maximum amount of power that a power plant's able to produce to the grid um, at any given time? And whenever we're thinking about our thermal fleet, like our coal and our natural gas, our nuclear fleet, that's generally kind of the 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 mark that we're we're looking at. We we're expecting a lot of that to show up during these during these peak events. We also have, you know, uh, you know, 30,000 megawatts of, you know, wind on the system, and we have thousands of megawatts of, of solar on the system. Whenever ERCOT is making their predictions about what is going to be available during, you know, peak events, they, they derate that capacity, and that's, that's known. They, we know the wind's probably not going to be blowing full on, you know, during a winter peak event. And we know, we, well, we really know that the sun's not going to be shining full on during a winter peak event, because that typically happens early in the morning. And so those, those capacities are, are derated. If you look across every fuel that we have in, in ERCOT, our coal and our natural gas fleet perform below their, their minimum expectations, for the entire time that the power was out. Nuclear performed at its worst output, at its at its lowest expectations. We have two nuclear plants, four reactors. We lost one reactor to a sensor issue. Um, and so we were down, you know, a core, uh, 25% of our, our nuclear output. And then wind and solar kind of fluctuated between their expected and their worst case scenarios. But it really kind of depended on what time the event was. Because it's, you know, a winter peak event, usually people think about a point in time, but this was four days. And so things were changing significantly over, over that time. So I've been talking about lessons and saying what lessons do people draw. 
people have been drawing the message. Um, some people have been drawing the message to say, well, look, this shows that increased proportion of renewables on the grid, particularly variable renewables, wind and solar on the grid, makes the grid unreliable, increases its vulnerability to these kind of incidents and to extreme weather events and so on. Is that fair or unfair? I mean, is that something that, regardless of everything else that went on in Texas, is that something you can say that there is an increased risk of outages as you get more wind and solar? I mean, I think the you know, one needs to pay attention as to, you know, what are you expecting from each of these technologies? And some some technologies are better at providing energy and some technologies are better at providing power. And one needs to make sure that we have, you know, adequate amounts of power whenever whenever we need it. But we also need to pay attention to things on the, the energy side of things, like what's the cost of energy or the carbon intensity of the energy that's being produced. On the paper, if you looked at, you know, how many power plants we had and what we were expecting from each of our um, types of, of facilities, if they had all performed at what we were expecting them to perform at, we would have done a lot better. There might have been a few outages here and there because of an extreme event, um, but it wouldn't have been near as deep and as long as, uh, as, as the actual event was. And so I think it's important to, you know, to be paying attention to, what different types of, of energy provide. And as we get more and more variable renewables on the system, we need to have a better control over, say, like load, more demand response or inter- increased energy efficiency. We can attack this you know, supply-demand equation from, from both sides. But I also think it's important to be realistic in terms of like these events. Like whenever we're doing simulations, what type of weather files are we using to simulate what the outputs of these things, of these facilities are, are, are going to be? With wind and solar, you know, their, their fuel supply, the wind or, the, or the, the sun, is a just-in-time delivery system, right? It's just like it shows up and it creates. Um, and then it, you know, whenever it goes away, it's gone. One of the things that we also found in, in Texas is that our natural gas supply is also kind of a just-in-time delivery system. We, we don't have much storage in the system. We're constantly producing it from wells, processing it, compressing it, putting it in pipelines, and sending it down the line. We lost 85% of our production in the Permian Basin you know, during this event. And so we had power plants that were otherwise usually considered firm did not have firm fuel supplies, which led to you know, outages as well. So Emily, how have you been thinking about this then? As you've been, as you were watching what happened in Texas a year ago and sort of digesting the lessons and the whole kind of debate, the discourse, the claims and counterclaims that were flying around after it, how have you been thinking about it? Yeah, I think um, it really comes down to this idea of like, are we okay with blackouts anymore? You know, there's history of energy in this country. There've been a lot of brownouts and blackouts and there's lots of reasons, you know, hurricanes, um, wildfires, uh, freezes. There's lots of um, weird weather now. And we live in a world where everything is increasingly electric and people rely on it for so many things, for cooking, for heating, for Um, medical devices, you know, there's so much that we probably are maybe underestimating as we electrify everything in our system, how much we really need to do on investing in resilience in the grid and making sure that the electricity doesn't go out. So I think that's really the big takeaway from this. And I think actually probably the Biden administration agrees with that because I think in January they launched that building a better grid initiative to really, you know, work on that goal of getting to 100 percent clean electricity by 2035, we're going to have to make just huge multi-billion, $10 billion investments in the electric grid. Um, There's a lot of issues with transmission. Um, There's a lot of arcane rules about, you know, how even you can use local microgrids and transmit electricity across highways and into different communities. And I think looking really closely at that is going to be something key to putting renewables in line. But I do want to go back to what you were saying about renewables, because it was really clear that actually that renewables sort of performed closer than expected than the gas did during the whole Texas crisis. And so I know initially people were saying, oh my gosh, it's renewables. But really, when you looked at it, it was the gas that was really missing in Texas at that point. Um, Some renewables even performed better than expected. Some microgrids performed better than expected. So when there is like a peak cold event like that, it just is really a sign that we need to be rethinking about resilience um, in all of our different cities um, and thinking about distributed energy systems that we can use to prevent this kind of disaster from happening again. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely, I remember if you look at that breakdown of how much generation that had been expected to be there 
was not available and you rank it and this was something that came out i think in the FERC report into what had happened and, and came out in some of the work we'd done in wood mckenzie what was missing number one is natural gas generation by far i think more than half the sort of missing generation if you like and then after that it's coal and wind roughly equal i think but some way back and, and roughly speaking sort of half bit over half from uh, natural gas about a quarter each from wind and coal is my memory and bits from nuclear and maybe solar as well so simply in that sense it's very clear that it is very unfair to blame variable renewables for what happened but i mean as you're saying joshua you know there are some genuine issues there and there are some questions about resilience and particularly as you keep on adding to the variable renewables wind and solar on the grid new issues are going to emerge do you think i mean when you kind of talk to people as you talk to people around the world in other parts of the us or globally and you talk about the texas experience what are the things you would like people to think about when people say we've been appalled by what we saw happening in texas this was a disaster that we have to avoid what would you tell people to say this is what you need to do to stop this happening to you I mean, I think it really comes down to, you know, it, it wasn't just one system that failed, right? We have a, our, our, most, most people experienced, most people in Texas experienced, you know, the blackouts through the loss of electricity, but it was other supporting systems that, you know, kind of failed as well. The, the, the gas system not being able to deliver, you know, all the fuel that was being uh, um, demanded. Our, our city is only having, you know, one 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 storm's worth of uh, road salt um, to be able to put out, and so our road and we had we had actually had a snow event about two weeks before, and we had exhausted all of that, and so we ended up you know not being able to send out crews to you know fix power lines. A, lo- a lot of people probably lost power as well just because of the normal distribution issues that happen with you know wind or snow and ice events. But we were not able to send people out. We were not able to send out you know generators to or. or uh, trucks to refuel backup generators and and things because we we lost you know multiple levels of our of our system and then that also impacted our our water system there were 14 million texans that were under a boil water notice for multiple days and they didn't even have the energy to boil their water at that point right they're like bad water and then no energy to uh to 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 clean it up and then you know we our our homes are not built for that kind of thing. Like our homes are only generally built to handle about twenty five degrees Fahrenheit, and it got much colder than that. And so a lot of our pipes froze, and then you know there's ten to twenty billion dollars worth of insured damages um, associated with other infrastructure. Um, and then the financial you know damages are in the hundreds of billions, and we're going to be paying for those for for decades, just like California just finished paying off Enron. So what that tells you is that modern economies are very complicated. Energy underpins everything. There are a lot of relationships, interconnections, probably that are not generally well understood, certainly not by the public, probably not even by uh, policymakers and regulators, is part of the answer that we really need to understand these systems properly so we can be ready for the way you can get these kind of cascading crises where one thing can go wrong, which triggers another thing, which triggers another thing, which triggers another thing, and things kind of spiral out of control the way they did in Texas. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think really looking at, you know, how different systems are connected and how they interact with each other in at different times as well. You know, the way that the gas sector and the electricity sector interact in the summer is much different than they do in the winter. In the winter in Texas, there's much more competition for that gas for heating versus in the summer, nobody in Texas wants heating for anything because it's already hot enough. Um, so all that gas can flow to power plants. But it's, so it's, it's, you know, taking a hard look at, you know, as our systems become more interconnected, how failures in one can lead to failures in others. So Emily, one of the things I wonder about also in the year since the crisis is what the effect has been on the kind of the public debate, just people's perceptions of renewable energy. A lot of people are still jumping on the very simplistic narrative about wind power fails, wind power is bad, you shouldn't have so much wind. Is that an argument that you kind of come across a lot? Do you find people repeating that? Do you think that of what happened in Texas is a setback for the renewable energy industry in the US? I don't know, Ed. I guess I disagree with that entire question. (laughs) I think there's actually... um, If we come back to this, and you really think about it, you know, we're talking about 
you said this whole question with Joshua about, you know, should we look at this? And okay, let's look at it, but you can actually fix this today. There are things that we can do that we can build that make this, you know, a non-issue, right? There's microgrids all over the place. You just have to incentivize them. There's so many companies that have microgrids, batteries, community storage options, community microgrid options, community solar options. There's so many ways to create this distributed energy into our systems to back up and create a more flexible system. You just have to incentivize it and really feel aggressive and ready to have the transmission ready, um, to have the interconnection ready, to um, make all of these systems work together. Like we just sort of have to acknowledge that there's a little bit of entropy in how we provide energy now. And I guess that is part of the study to it. But really, we also just have to build. So look, I'm going to pass over the fact that you've just uh, demolished my question, because this is actually a great segue into the next subject I wanted to talk about, which is the attempt to strengthen the power grid in New York with, as you say, something that could be done right now. A little bit of context to this. You probably remember the uh, story of the Indian Point nuclear plant, which is about 30 miles from Manhattan. That was shut down last year after a sustained campaign from environmental activists going back for many decades. The argument was made at the time that zero carbon electricity provided by that plant could be replaced by new zero carbon generation, including wind power and hydropower from Quebec, which would be brought down to New York by a new 330 mile uh, transmission line, which is called the Champlain Hudson Power Express. Well, what's happened now is that some environmental campaigners, including a group called Riverkeeper, have turned around and said, oh, actually, we said before we were in favour of this line and we sort of suggested we were in favour of it. Actually, now we oppose it. We don't think it's a great idea. They've raised a list of objections to it, including the argument that hydropower in Quebec or anywhere around the world is not really zero carbon. It's actually a polluting source and not as good as wind and solar, which strikes me as a really fascinating story in a number of ways, goes right to the heart of your point, Emily, about needing to strengthen the grid, being so important to build new transmission capacity to connect up places where we generate renewable energy to places where the demand is. Classic example of that, this generation in Quebec being connected to New York City. And it also, I think, shows that very... Um, fundamental problem. We've talked about it quite a bit on this show already, which is just that it's really hard to build anything in America. And sometimes environmental groups are one of the problems in terms of getting new low carbon, zero carbon infrastructure built. Emily, what what do you think about this? So as you say, you've been talking very persuasively and convincingly about the need to strengthen the grid and why it's really important and why it helps. It's the great enabler for getting more renewable zero carbon energy onto the grid and available in the energy mix. What do you think of a story like this, where apparently getting that transmission built is going to be difficult, in part because the environmental groups oppose it? Yeah, well, I mean, in every time we're building energy, there's somebody who opposes it, you know, whether it's a wind farm or a solar farm. I remember one of my um, favorite stories when I first started covering and writing about wind as a journalist was about this whole idea whether, you know, wind kills birds and wind power kills birds. And, you know, people were opposed to wind power for that. And, you know, then I think Bloomberg did a story at that point about um, the biggest killer of birds, and it was actually cats. It wasn't wind power. In in amazing numbers, right? Cats kill literally (laughs) hundreds of millions, possibly even billions of birds in the US every year. They are some very aggressive animals. I'm allergic to cats myself, so I don't have that. Sorry, just before we offend anyone here, this is not an anti-cat podcast. I'm personally um, very favorable of cats. Some of our best friends own cats. Not, you know, I, would, I might consider myself more of a dog person. But anyway, just sorry, just so we got that on the record. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> I do have a dog. Um, anyway, okay. So hydropower, though, I think um, you know there was this great quote earlier this year by um, Fatih Barrel, who's the executive director of the International Energy Agency, and um, he said that hydropower is the forgotten giant of clean electricity, right? And if you really look at how much hydropower there is around the world, that that is sort of the 
consistent baseload power that we are looking for. Um, if you you know if you're not going to use nuclear, if you're not going to use oil or gas, you know hydropower is sort of the clean energy version of it. Um, I guess you know hydropower itself obviously very controversial. It doesn't have the best history in terms of dams, you know, being destructive to nature and you know, just all these different challenges when you are actually physically changing the way the world looks to create energy in this way. But there is a lot of benefit in terms of resiliency. So this project in New York, I guess construction is supposed to begin in the spring on um, the largest renewable energy project in New York since um, the Niagara Falls was used to like build hydropower over 50 years ago. So this is really a huge project. Um, and the transmission line would deliver enough hydropower for about 20% of New York City's needs, which is a lot. Obviously, New York City could also learn to be more energy efficiency. So we don't need so much power. But, you know, a consistent baseload of power, I live in New York myself. So a consistent baseload power, obviously, is something um, a lot of people are interested in obtaining and having for the city to keep going the way it has been. I guess hydropower projects are really complex. There's a lot of permitting that you have to go through. So I think a lot of these environmental issues and all these consultants um, will come up through that. Obviously, you want to figure out a way to provide clean energy that does not harm the environment. So this is there's a lot of issues around like responsible siting. And, you know, everybody has their points here. And it's just about about balance. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. You can see the argument against. You can see why people say hydropower is not zero carbon because it, it isn't. In particular, there are issues with um, vegetation rotting in the water and methane gets released. And obviously, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. But it's really interesting. I was looking at a report on this from the IPCC from 2018 where they did a big study on carbon footprint of hydropower. Seems like there's a very, very big variation around the world, very wide band. And actually at the top end, the highest emitting hydropower plants can kind of get close to a natural gas plant in terms of their emissions. So clearly that's not great. But the average is really pretty low. And at the best end of things, hydropower is very, very low carbon. And things that make a difference is, for instance, if your reservoirs are deep rather than broad and shallow, that's good for keeping down the carbon footprint. If you're in a colder temperature, that's also better for keeping down the carbon footprint. Both of those apply to Hydro-Quebec, which is where this power would be coming from for New York. The reservoirs in the recently constructed hydro systems are deep. And obviously in Quebec, average temperatures are reasonably cool. Um, Absolutely better in the winter, obviously. So... It doesn't seem like really there's a fundamental problem with hydropower from Quebec. And certainly when you look at what's immediately replaced the Point plant, which is increased natural gas generation, hydropower has got to be better than that. And the other thing I always think about this is, well, as you say, people object to anything and to everything. And if you tried to build solar plants in New York, people complain about that. If you try to build wind farms, people complain about that. There are always reasons not to do something. There's a great danger of making the perfect be the enemy of the good and in just raising objections to everything. Joshua, just thinking about this, I mean, think about this from the Texas perspective in particular, and probably an interesting analogy here, because you've got a very weird situation in Texas, right, where you're, you're sort of under-provided with transmission capacity. The state of Texas is not a complete island, but it's almost an island, isn't it, in terms of uh, power connections. There's very few power lines running in and out of the state, although it would presumably be very possible to build more. Well, talk about the issue specifically in Texas, but also just in general terms, what is the importance, do you think, of being able to build new grid capacity? Yeah, no, I think that's a it's a great question and something we're going to have to we're going to have to we're going to have to figure out going forward particularly if we want to decarbonize the the energy sector. So a quick background on Texas. So so Texas or the Electric Reliability Council of Texas constitutes about 90% of electricity consumption in Texas and it itself is wholly contained within within Texas and so it doesn't fall under some of the uh, jurisdictions of of things like FERC. So there's less federal oversight of of our grid. We are weakly connected to other grids about 1000 megawatts or so of DC connections. So non 
non-synchronous connections to the eastern and the uh, western interconnects. But our peak demand's you know up in the mid seventy thousands of megawatts, and so it's it's very weak compared to you know the um, the amount of of energy that we consume. We did uh, build about $7 billion worth of transmission earlier in the, uh, the 2010s. The CREZ, the Competitive Renewable Energy Zones, it unlocked a lot of wind and now solar capacity out in West Texas where our best resources are and brought them eastern to like the, where, the, where the cities are, the Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston um, areas. Um, and it really allowed for a explosion in, in renewable uh, you know, development in Texas. And it's one of the more favorable places to, to develop. Those lines stayed within the state, and so they were. There was less uh, issues with them, although they did run into, you know, they did run into um, resistance as as well. And you know, as we've seen in other big projects, like I mean, it, it is hard to to build stuff in big, particularly big stuff that that goes a long ways and um, that crosses multiple jurisdictions, and you know, have to get lots of different people um, to the to the table. I, I one time wrote a a piece in the conversation. It was actually a funny story. And one time, I I had a I was under kind of a yearly contract with this um, place at the University of Texas called the Energy Institute, and they accidentally forgot to uh, hit continue. And so I came into work one day and had no access to my computer. I guess they, in the terms of office space, they may have fixed the glitch, although they didn't mean to. Um, but I, so I just started to add up our energy infrastructure. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't access any of my stuff. So I just started to add up our, our, our energy infrastructure. And it came out that if we wanted to wholesale replace like every power plant and power line that we had, which is a fantasy scenario. I mean, we wouldn't do it verbatim, but it would cost about $5 trillion to do so. And then if you look at the depreciated status of all of that stuff, so how old things are and how much like of their useful life is gone, it's about worth about two trillion. So it's more than halfway depreciated our energy system. And so trillions of dollars to replace what we currently have, but that may be not where we want to go, right? If we want to have a, um, you know, a decarbonized energy system that brings in power from, from other regions, we're going to have to invest lots um, of money and build lots of, of infrastructure. And we're never going to make everyone happy. I mean, we should always do our best to like to not run roughshod over over groups, but we're never going to make everyone happy. EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt level capacity. These inverters have industry leading response time, advanced control features and grid forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest US grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over two gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility scale and CNI product lines and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. So one other organization that's talking about decarbonization and getting to net zero is the US Army. The US Army recently published its net zero strategy. It's setting goals of a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 and getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, As you might imagine, that plan came in for quite a bit of criticism, both from people who think the US Army should be prioritizing national security over climate security, and also from people who think the very idea of a sustainable military is kind of an oxymoron. But you can see why they're doing it. The US Army's emissions are significant. If the US Army was a country, it would be in the top 50 biggest emitters worldwide. So as part of the Biden administration's overall climate strategy, setting a net zero goal for the army does seem pretty logical. It is also the case that a lot of the things the army is talking about doing in terms of cutting emissions have important benefits in terms of improving resilience, reducing cost, making the army a more efficient and a more resilient operation. Emily, you had a look at this strategy. What did you make of it? Does it seem kind of sensible for you? Is this a reasonable thing for the US Army to be doing? You know, the military is always one of the 
biggest users of solar power out there and sort of initially making it something that people felt they could rely on. You know, our very remote army bases have used solar power for a really, really long time. So I think they're more familiar um, with this kind of renewable energy than maybe some other organizations actually are than they get credit for. And so um, if they think this is something that's going to save costs, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that electric vehicle fleets could be um, easier to travel with, um, you know, provide more freedom and more tactical security. So I think if they're interested in doing this, then the the Army is a very adaptable organization and saying that they can do it, then there's a lot of other organizations that could do it as well. So Joshua, this is something uh, you have been looking at, your colleagues have been looking at the University of Texas, right? The case for the US military adopting renewables, other forms of low carbon energy, right? Yeah, when when thinking about climate change and different forms of energy for for the army, I think there, there there's kind of two there's two ways to think about it. One is kind of a long term focus, and one is kind of a short term focus. So long term, I mean, the Department of Defense has called climate change a conflict multiplier, right? And so if there are certain regions around the world that are going to be impacted by climate change, and you're going to displace large amounts of people, and their future prospects are going to be reduced, that's a hotbed for people to be radicalized and for you know more skirmishes and more more discontent, um, which can lead to us having to intervene more often, and that costs money, energy, lives, and all that all that kind of thing. There's also the fact that the army already spends a lot of money and lives to get fuel, to get the current fuels that they use to where they need to use them. So just some numbers out there. So if the army pays two to three dollars per gallon of fuel to use, if it's trying to get that fuel to a forward operating base in a combat zone, it can take up to four hundred dollars per gallon in order to get that fuel to where it's consumed. And so that's a that's a significant amount of money to pay for a gallon of fuel. And in Afghanistan, you know, it costs about twenty five gallons per fuel per soldier per day. Right. And so you start multiplying how many thousands of soldiers there are by how many gallons of fuel there are, by how much money it takes to just get that fuel to them. And then it comes to no surprise that there's 60,000 troops uh, that are just dedicated to delivering fuel in our army. That's like bigger than some other countries' armies altogether is we have just a, a infrastructure designed to, you know, to deliver fuel. And a lot of times these fuels are delivered via convoys. And these convoys are easy targets um, for roadside bombs and rockets and things like that. And about, you know, half of our deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan were due to, you know, convoys being being bombed. And a lot of convoys we have are for moving this fuel. So the short-term focus, if we can get away from having to consume so much of this fuel, particularly in theaters where we are, it can save tons of money and many, many lives. Those are amazing numbers. But I guess actually, when you think about the history of oil in conflict, then if you read, a lot of people in energy have read it. But if you haven't, I would urge you to read it. But Daniel Jurgen's excellent book, The Prize, which is a history of oil. And one of the things I found particularly fascinating about that was how oil has shaped conflict over the past 150 years or so. And in the course of World War II, absolutely shaped in many ways by fuel and the availability of fuel. Even World War I, which you perhaps don't think of in the same way as being sort of a war for oil, was very much um, shaped by oil. And clearly it's been true of more recent conflicts as well. So as you say, you know, changes in fuel, the way fuel can be transported, stored and used can have really important strategic impacts. So Emily, this is something you were talking about right at the top of the show about the relationship between energy and conflict and how we're seeing to some degree that playing out in the situation between Russia and Ukraine right now. When you think about the energy transition then, is this something you think which is kind of shaping the energy transition? Is this something we should be thinking about in terms of another argument for moving away from fossil fuels is it could help reduce conflict. The history, you know, certainly across my adult life, I've seen so many conflicts over energy. So this is a space where obviously as, you know, land becomes more challenge in certain places in the world where um, weather becomes more challenging, like there's there's just going to be limits to our lives that the the outer bound of our 
life is a little bit more limited than it used to be. And so I think seeing an organization like the Army take such a strategic approach um, and comprehensive approach to it is something um, a lot of other places could look at um, for inspiration. So we're going to have to uh, wrap up pretty soon. But before we go, we should probably just lighten the mood a little bit and uh, change the subject away from global conflict. Uh, Joshua, this is your your first time on the show, but um, we have these things called free electrons where we're each bringing in something maybe a little bit kind of offbeat or personal to us that we want to talk about. So uh, Joshua, what have you got for us? Yeah, so there was a recent announcement by the Biden administration about uh, buying clean, um, buying clean products, particularly around you know steel, cement, aluminum, and, and other types of, of products. And it's a it's a big deal because the U.S. government you know buys about six hundred fifty billion dollars worth of you know products and services per year. So if they decide to use that purchasing power to you know buy cleaner products, it can you know incentivize whole industries and, you know, potentially move, you know, the market. And a lot of these are, are focused in kind of the getting the industrial sector to be, to be cleaner, I mean, the, the big, you know, metals and, and, and concretes and, and, and things like that, which is about a third of our greenhouse gas emissions in the, in the U.S. And so that could be, you know, a pretty big deal. It also has about 10 billion in there for uh, clean hydrogen and, and CCS and carbon capture and sequestration, which, um, which I find interesting. I'm as, at the University of Texas, I'm working on a, a DOE H2 at scale projects, you know, looking at, getting clean hydrogen in a state that consumes about one third of the you know US hydrogen production. So we we're we're there. So that buy clean thing, how does it work then? I mean, is this the case that the US government will be buying lower carbon products even if they're more expensive? Because presumably yeah, I mean, then there are trade offs there and that's the kind of thing where well maybe they'll be able to do, you know, the dollars won't go as far. I mean, you can see it's a policy that could have some downsides, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if it were cheaper to do it in a low carbon way, we probably would have done that, you know, already. But, you know, we can do things like incentivize whole markets to to form. I mean, solar used to be much more expensive than it is today. And through part of, you know, subsidies around the world is, you know, driven down the cost of, of production and, and, and deployment and the, you know, the costs are even unsubsidized or not are now down pretty low. And so if, if things like this can get nascent markets started um, and then let them run with it, I think it could be a very useful thing for society. Got it. Emily, what's yours? Yeah, well, I was looking at the World Resources Institute, a you know, outfit, a research outfit of, of Washington, D.C. They have a data set tracking electric school bus adoption that they've just updated. And so they said that there's over 1,800 electric school buses that have been committed to in the U.S. now by 354 school districts. And that's 600 more buses um, for electric school bus commitments than six months ago. And the reason I thought this was interesting was that, you know, there's half a million school buses across the U.S. There's so many children every day where the school bus is a daily part of their life. And, um, you know, Generate has an electric bus program um, that works with a lot of companies and campuses and college campuses on electric buses, not school buses per se. The reasons that companies and campuses are choosing electric buses is not even for the environmental benefits, but it's largely for the health benefits. And, um, just diesel is such a carcinogen and we use it to power buses. There's so much pollution inside buses. Um, I think the stat is that the ambient pollution inside buses is 12 times higher. Um, so think about the first kid of, of the day picked up on the bus with the longest bus ride or the kids who, um, you know, from lower income communities are bus to higher income communities for school. You know, we're exposing them to all this daily pollution that negatively affects their development. So I think it would be really exciting for um, children to see more electric school buses and that electric school buses um, become more available and that there's more demand for them. So it's more of a, a health issue, which I think sometimes um, when we talk about why people are switching to clean energy, sometimes the health issue um, is actually the primary driver as opposed to the all the other benefits. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't even really thought about that. But as you say, just in terms of where is the case for an electric vehicle really compelling, school buses must be absolutely at the top of the list. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that story. Yeah, I because we also know, you know, where those school buses are going to be. They have pretty defined routes. You know, they're in their, you know, bus barns during pretty defined times. And so things like, you know, um, scheduled charging or demand response or even like bus to grid <laughs> type, type applications could be pretty strong there. It's a great idea. Bus to grid, all for it. <laughs> yes, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? So look, my one is also an EV story at kind of, I guess you could say, the opposite end of the market, which is the electric DeLorean. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar. You probably remember the DeLorean sports car from the sort of late 70s, early 80s, which had kind of 
a pretty short existence as a real thing, a much bigger existence as a cult item because it's in the Back to the Future movies as it's what the scientist makes his time machine out of. Um, what is that guy's name? Doc Brown. Doc, Doc Brown, Brown. Yeah. Thank you very much. I knew you would know that better than me. <laughs> I just want to know if it charges at 1.21 gigawatts. Like, does it charge it at 121 gigawatts? I want to know this. I need a red vest. Is that its charging right rate? Now. <laughs> right, because exactly this is what the plan is now, is to bring this car back. The, the brand, I think, has changed hands uh, a few times. Yeah. A different company now owns it, but they've still got the DeLorean mark. And they are planning to bring it back, they say, as an EV. And there was a little ad in the uh, Super Bowl, I think, or kind of, I don't know if it showed uh, with us in the Super Bowl in every market, but certainly they released it at the same time as the Super Bowl, just showing a little clip of those famous, you know, the gullwing doors opening, and here it is. It's all a little bit unclear exactly what's coming, when you're going to be able to drive it, but they're talking about um, opening an office in San Antonio, Texas, of course, the big place for EVs right now with uh, Tesla moving there in a big way. And they're talking about opening this office in San Antonio. We'll have 450 people working there, which is um, sort of marketing, engineering, design, and so on. Not entirely clear to me where their factory is. I don't know if they've got a plan for a plant yet, but the stories are saying that you'll be able to buy one probably next year, which probably not giving Elon Musk too many sleepless nights. I don't imagine it's going to take a huge chunk of the EV market, but still, I think it's a very fun idea, and I think it's a, it's a nice thought, and I'm sure there will be many people in that kind of very specific market niche of Back to the Future fans and EV adopters that are going to be very excited about this. Yeah, I'm not sure that Elon Musk isn't a Back to the Future fan. I mean, I'm sure that he is with the um, gullwing doors on the Teslas already and bringing those back. I don't know if he ever thought DeLorean would actually compete with him. So that's an interesting scenario. Yeah, I have heard that the, you know, the the retro electric vehicle market, like retrofits and things like that is is actually growing pretty well. And actually, my one of my dreams is actually to electrify an old C3 Corvette. It's like my favorite, like it's my my car. Um it's one of the things I want to do at some point in life. But I love this idea. Yeah, I think it's like it, the DeLorean kind of looks like a Cybertruck version of a car, right? I mean, it's kind of like, so we're kind of there a little bit with the stainless steel panels and those those uh edges. So, I'm all for it. Yeah, it, it is very cool. And as you say, there's a lot of kind of interesting designs. I've seen a few sort of concept cars of sort of old Cadillacs, big old um, uh, Chevys, pickups from the 60s and that kind of thing, all done as EVs, which, uh, yeah, could be really good fun and definitely an, an interesting new section of the market. So... Unfortunately, we do have to leave it there, but thank you very much indeed, Emily. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua. Hope we'll be seeing you both again very soon. And thank you all very much for listening. Please do let us know what you think. As usual, give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. You can find us on Twitter. We're at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.